This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So sometimes we, we learn things just because we're told to, don't we? Asking like, like, why do I really need to know this? Uh, that is probably how most of you felt growing up in math and chemistry and physics, the three greatest subjects known to man. Uh, we at least got one over here. It's like, why? Like, why do I need to learn how to solve a parabolic equation? When am I ever going to need to use that? I'm an engineer, and I never needed to use that. You still need to learn it, though, okay? Sometimes, though, we learn things because we want to claim that we know, right? Saying, like, like look at me. I know this. So, for example, I could sing to you all of the presidents of the United States in order, even when Cleveland came back again. Uh, I could sing to you the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, not well, but I could. Or if you want any 90s grunge song, all of those lyrics are up here. They are burned in permanently. But, you know, other times we learn things because we actually want to know, don't we? We, we, we learn them with a purpose in mind, with, a, with an end in mind. So, for example, you, you likely went into college or, or trade school to study what it is that you needed to know for the line of work you wanted to go into. You, you felt like your learning mattered. You were growing as you learned, being formed by what you learned. And when it comes to Jesus... Sometimes I think we wonder why all this talk of theology really matters, right? Does, you're wondering why, like, wondering why reading your Bible really matters. Asking, like, is this, is this going to be on the test? Do I need to, like, take notes on this? Sometimes we set out to learn more about Jesus just so we can impress others with what we know. But what I want us to see this morning as we begin this third chapter in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi in our series for the good of one another is that knowing Jesus, and not just knowing more about Jesus, not just memorizing his Wikipedia page, but, but truly knowing Jesus, knowing him more intimately, knowing him more personally, it not only matters, but it is the single most important thing you will ever know. Growing as you learn, being formed by what you learn. Knowing Jesus not only, as we see throughout this letter, for your own good, but for the good of others as well. So if you haven't already, let's open up our Bibles. We're in the New Testament book of Philippians today. We're going to be in the first half of chapter 3. And, and Paul begins this transition into the second half of the letter, saying here in verse 1, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And he's reminding them that in spite of their suffering, right there, they were those that at times felt stuck in that valley that, that needed a reminder that the words were true, that they could rejoice in the midst of their financial struggles, in the midst of their social opposition and oppression they were facing because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He's reminding them there's still reason to be filled with joy, offering this additional encouragement before he jumps into the exhortation. He says to him, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Like, let's be, parents especially, like uh, when you have to ask for the fifth time, it starts to get a little annoying. Paul's like, no, nah, it's good. I'll remind you as many times as it takes. Paul, though, often tends to have a bit more grace and patience, doesn't he? It's no trouble to write it again. 
I don't mind telling you what I taught you when I was with you. I don't, mind, I don't mind telling you again what I just wrote you like two pages ago in the same letter again. Because, here's why. Because it is a safeguard for you, he says. He's protecting them from a possible threat that is coming. And it's at this point then that the tone, it changes a bit. The pace picks up a little bit. And he offers two warnings in this passage. A warning against adding other things to Jesus and a warning of valuing other things above Jesus. And so this first warning is about of adding other things to Jesus, making the gospel Jesus and essentially saying Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus and. And he says in verse two, he writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And this warning, it actually sounds rather similar to what we read uh, in Galatians last year, in, in, the, in the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, warning of what were likely culturally Jewish Christians following after Paul, infiltrating the church as he planted, and essentially saying that Paul guy, he was wrong, right? He, he was preaching this watered-down, low-calorie, no-fat, light version of the gospel, Right? He, he left some stuff out. He left out really important stuff. There's, there's additional things you need to do, and there's other things you're not allowed to do in order to be righteous, in order to be considered part of the people of God, adding additional requirements, adding additional restrictions from the Mosaic law, adding it to what Paul had taught. But instead of saying, whoopsie, I forgot that part. So sorry about that. You're right. You should listen to them. Right? No, he warns them, saying, no, look out for them. And, and his warning comes with a bit of irony. Because he's pointing to these people who were claiming to be promoting a, a ritual cleanliness under the Mosaic law and calling them dogs. Now, mind you, when he calls them dogs, he's not saying, you are cute and cuddly like Alice. You haven't seen Alice for a couple months, so I need to make sure you saw Alice. Everybody go, aw, aw. Now, mind you, beagles didn't exist then. They came around in like the 1800s. And so the dogs he's describing don't look like that. No, the dogs he's describing, they were vicious scavengers who were themselves unclean and who made everything they touched unclean, roaming the streets, looking for something to devour, evil and divisive, and they were tearing the church apart, mutilating the flesh, he writes. In the original Greek, the word for mutilating, it actually rhymes with circumcision because they were requiring men to be circumcised, making it Jesus and adding other things to Jesus. They said you must first become culturally Jewish in addition to your faith in Jesus, bearing the mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17, this physical signifier that you were a part of God's old covenant chosen people. Kind of in the, in the same way that as sports fans, we, we wear our favorite jersey of our favorite player. Everybody's wearing number one in blue and orange today, and all God's Bears fans said amen. He's back today. QB1 is back. Tim says he's going to throw first five touchdowns today. I'm going to take the under, but I hope he wins. Or if you're an employee of a company wearing your uniform or, or a polo with your corporate logo on it. 
And what they were doing is they were building walls that exclude people from God, adding additional requirements that restricted others from relationship with God and relationship with others. If you don't wear the right logo, you're not allowed into the office. You're not accepted as an employee of this company. If you don't wear the right jersey, you're not allowed into the stadium. You're not accepted as a fan of this team. And if you don't follow the right set of rules as we have determined them, you are not allowed into the family of God. You are not accepted as a child of God. You are kept out. But he's not only warning them to look out for them and to not listen to them, he's also warning them to not become like them. Because we are prone to do the very same thing to ourselves and to others. And like these dogs, we end up devouring and dividing as we build walls that exclude, pushing people further and further away from Jesus rather than pointing them to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. And we do this by building barriers that keep people from Jesus. Adding additional restrictions, things you're not allowed to do in order to be allowed in the church. It's as though the welcome team's got a survey at the front door that on your first Sunday in, if you don't check the right boxes, you gotta stay in the parking lot. Adding additional restrictions, adding additional requirements, things you must do in order to be accepted as a Christian. If you don't do the right thing the right way, which is our thing, our way, you're not accepted as a Christian, or at least not a good one. And what we do is we end up diverting people away from the way of Jesus by adding to the words of Jesus. And what we end up creating resembles a cult far more than a church, doesn't it? Only allowing those in who look like you, who live like you, who worship like you, everyone else kept out. Only accepting those who think like you, who vote like you, everyone else is rejected. And yet, as Bonnie Thurston writes in her commentary on this passage, Paul understood that what God was doing in Jesus was precisely to include rather than to exclude. The new covenant tore down walls, didn't it? Inviting more and more people into relationship with God. And we do that by pointing people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. And so he follows this warning with a reminder, reminding them of who they are, reminding them that that what those other people were saying, that's not how this works. He says, because under the new covenant, he says, we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. And here's how you can tell. Here is our defining mark. Here is the the distinctive that sets us apart. And he says, number one, it, it is that we worship by the spirit of God. Right, the mark of God's new covenant people is God's spirit dwelling within us individually, dwelling among us collectively that is it's an internal mark a circumcision of the heart we worship by the spirit of god number two we glory in the son of god in christ jesus he says boasting not in what we do but in who he is and what he has done and why he and why he came placing our faith and trust in his perfect work for our salvation to reunite us to god to make us right with god his, his sacrificial death on the cross forgiving us of our sin. His, his victorious resurrection freeing us from the power of sin and giving life. And his glorious ascension giving us the power of the Spirit. Because as the Son ascended, the Spirit descended, giving us hope. Knowing that today he is seated at the right hand of God reigning. Amen? 
from where he will return and where he will restore all of creation. And as a result of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he will do, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the work of our own hands to secure our salvation, to unite us to God, because we are people identified by our faith, not by our flesh. People known by our love. And yet so often we're prone to ignore this warning and listen to the voices rather than looking out for them. We're prone to add other things to Jesus, sometimes without even knowing it, making it Jesus and. Thinking that there is something you need to do in order to make yourself right with God. That Jesus, was in effect, wasn't enough, making it Jesus and. Thinking you need to do something, thinking you can do something to make yourself right with God. Thinking that if you do everything right, if you follow every rule, if you clean yourself, if you get yourself right, doing all the things you're supposed to do, not doing any of the things you're not supposed to do, that maybe then God will love me. Maybe then he'll love me more. That is putting confidence in the flesh. right? Turning to and trusting in your own works. But we put no confidence in the flesh, do we? Because our confidence is in the work of the Son in whom we believe and in the presence of the Spirit in whom we've received. Knowing that Jesus is, as the writer of Hebrews says, our once and for all sacrifice. And that when he said on the cross that it is finished, there was no asterisk on that. There was nothing else needed to be done to what Jesus did. Jesus is enough. And every requirement you add and every additional restriction you abide by, thinking God will love you more, is nothing but a lie. Because the truth is, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. He is a God who is love. He can't help but love you. It's who he is. It's an important warning. It's an important reminder that's not the only thing he, reminds, he warns us of. He not only warns us of adding other things to Jesus, he also goes on to warn us of a second thing, of valuing other things above Jesus, even good things above Jesus. See, when we, when we add other things to Jesus, thinking that our work is what ultimately matters, we're prone to value those things that we add and value them above Jesus. Because we're, we're proud of what we've done. You know, we're proud of all that we've achieved, all that we've avoided, and so he says in verse 4, he says, if anyone had good reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone should be proud of all the things they've done, it was him. It was Paul. He, he fulfilled every requirement and then some. He abided by every restriction and then some. And he's like, I see your achievements and I raise you. He's like, you got four kings? Hmm. I got five aces. Had one up my sleeve the whole time. You will never beat me. I will always beat you. He says, look at my resume, look at my credentials, look at all I've done. He says, look at the privileges I have received, look at the accomplishments that I have achieved. All right, he says, look at all the privileges I've received, look at all that I have inherited. He says, I was circumcised, bearing the mark of God's chosen covenant people, not as a convert later than life, but on the eighth day. And I was born into this, he says, born of the people of Israel, biological descendant of Abraham on both sides. 
Not only that, he says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, of the most, dis- the, the most distinguished of the 12 tribes, home of the temple in Jerusalem, home of the first king, King Saul, raised a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know the culture. I know the language. Look at all I've received. Not only that, he goes on to say, look at all the accomplishments I've achieved. Look at all that I've earned. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, he, he had advanced throughout his career. He was a model of piety, an observant, obedient Jewish man. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, right? Defeating God's enemies, defending God's honor with a, with a violent fanaticism that, Ron, that Reinhold Niebuhr refers to as the fury of self-righteousness. Arresting and executing these so-called followers of the way. And as to righteousness and under the law, blameless. Not that he was without sin, but that he perfectly followed every dot and iota of the Mosaic law. It's a rather impressive list, isn't it? And if you were writing today, I kind of think, um, if you're writing today, I think he'd say something like this. I was, I was dedicated on Mother's Day. Born a PK. Of a a fluent suburban megachurch, baptized at eight years old, an evangelical of evangelicals. As to Awana, a citation award winner. <laughs> to those of you that didn't laugh, that's the highest award you can get in Awana. As to tithing, I gave a tithe above a tithe. I gave 11%, and not of my net, but of my gross. Read the Bible cover to cover every year, sometimes twice a year. I am in five different groups of church that meet on each weeknight of the week. I sit in the same seat each and every Sunday, and I serve on not one team, but two each and every month. Man, we're prone to do the same thing, aren't we? Finding our value, our sense of worth in those things that we have received, those things we have achieved, even if they're good things. And what makes us value them above Jesus is that we find our sense of value and worth in those things. We look to those things to set us apart. They become our circumcision. They become our mark. We we value the privileges we've received. And I'm not saying we shouldn't value these things. Talking about where we value these things. That makes sense? We're valuing them above Jesus, even if we don't know it. Valuing uh, the privileges received financially, physically, your appearance, the color of your skin, geographically, where you were born, where you live. I mean, can we be honest, church? Have you ever heard someone value being born in Iowa more than me? By the way, we went to Big Ten West last night. We're going to the Big Ten championship game. We're going to lose... <laughs> I didn't say who we beat. I I abided by our agreement. (laughs) I was joking with AJ and Tim last night, though I think Iowa's going to score negative points in the Big Ten championship game. We value the privileges received. We value the accomplishments we've achieved. We value our athletic accomplishments, especially now. But back in the day, we did back then too, meaning when I was a kid. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but I want to share a little bit about your elder and pastor team just to like, you know, share some of our athletic accomplishments. I, um, I was an all-conference cross-country runner my senior year. That's me in the purple, 116. 
That was in the uh, Ottumwa Gazette where the district meet took place. I was in first place, one minute into the race. That's my friend Scott. You know why he's laughing? Because we knew we were about to get passed by everybody. The guy who won, he ain't even in the picture yet because he knows how to run. But not only that, you know, I went to state golf my junior year of high school. And before you get too impressed, mind you, this is Iowa Class A. That's the little schools. Mom was the only one. Tim, I don't know if you know this, Tim threw a perfect game in high school baseball. All right, quick clap for that. Yeah, Tim threw a perfect game. He went on to become a starting pitcher in college that never pitched. That's him in fifth grade. Isn't he cute? Yeah. Rob? Rob was on the 2019 MFL championship team. Here they are holding their trophy. I said MFL, not NFL. Molly Ali Flag Football League. We got Rob. Y'all see Alvin over there? A couple to the left. Sean's right behind him. Johnsy's in there too. And a whole bunch more. Look how vicious it is. Two guys on crutches. This is legit flag football. Oh, Dan did some things too. He was like uh, all-conference a defensive lineman at New Mexico State University and uh, a key member of their 1978 Missouri Valley Conference Championship team. I mean, if you're into like college achievements, I guess that was pretty good. Y'all are heading back to the conference title too, aren't you? Yep. Was that the first time since you've been there that they're going to be back? Uh-huh. Be the second best team in school history this year. We value these things. We value our academic achievements. I can still tell you my GPA in high school, college, and grad school. Not proud that I can tell you that, but I remember it because it valued, I valued it. We value our degree. We value if you've been to grad school. We value our professional achievements, how high up that corporate ladder you've climbed. We value our role, be it our role at home and your family, if you are a spouse, if you are a parent, and if you don't believe me when I say that our culture values those things, look at how it values those who are not and who are unable. Valuing our role at work and your career your job title, your salary, the number of people that report to you. Now, I remember when I started at Motorola long ago, I, I, had a, I had a level that I needed to achieve by the age 30, and when I hit it at 29, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And so then I went on to another goal to achieve. We value our possessions, what we own. We value our toys when we're kids. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I, uh, I valued my baseball cards, my football cards, my garbage pail kid cards. I, to this day, they're still in this shed. I have Kraft cheese boxes filled with baseball cards. Kraft cheese was like perfectly designed to insert baseball cards into. They're still in the shed to this day. And I thought that one day they would be worth gold. And now that we're adults, we just measure the value of our things differently, don't we? We just have bigger, more expensive toys that we value. We measure value in terms of square footage, number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, number of cars we can fit in the garage and the cars that we drive. We value our experiences, what we've done, the vacations we've taken, the places we've traveled. 
And what Paul says in verse 7, he says, but whatever I have gained, whatever gain I have, the things I value, the things I chase after, the things I pursue, those things that hold our attention and our affection that we invest so much time and effort and energy into obtaining, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he says. And like the great stock market crash of 1929 where, where stocks of great value in an instant were worthless, where the housing collapse of 2008, where houses of great value were all of a sudden underwater with their mortgage, everything Paul valued, his accomplishments, his achievements, all of those things that he had written down in the asset column of his ledger, they were now considered worthless. They were of absolutely no value whatsoever, and not just those things, but everything. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. And he's not talking about how my garbage pail kids are actually worth nothing anymore. They're not even worth the cardboard they were printed on. He's not talking about something going from something to nothing. No, he's talking about not just having no value, but negative value. Not just writing it off as a loss, but moving it into the liabilities column of his ledger, and it was now debt. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of something far more valuable that he was now aware of that he began to know that he had received. And for his sake, for the sake of knowing Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, he says. And so often what we find is that value is relative. Sometimes this works in a, in a, in a good way. Sometimes this works in a very bad way. I'm more referring to the first Value is relative and it's based on an objective. Something has value as long as it enables you to accomplish your objective. I say that sometimes it's bad is that we do that to people too. When people stop being able to accomplish our objective, they're of no value to us anymore. I'm not talking about that, just to clarify. I'm talking about things. And when this thing no longer does that, when it no longer helps us accomplish our objective, it loses its value. It is rubbish. Apparently the ESV had a British translator for the book of Philippians. A saw, for example. If you want to cut a piece of wood into two, a saw is of great value, isn't it? But if you want to assemble two pieces of wood together, a saw has of absolutely no value. It no longer helps you accomplish that objective. And so Paul no longer viewed these other things, what he had received, the tribe he was born into, the, what he had achieved, having risen through the ranks, as valuable because they no longer helped him with his new objective in this thing that he now valued most, which was knowing Jesus. Not just knowing more about Jesus, but knowing Jesus more, more personally, more intimately, knowing him as Christ, knowing him as Lord, being formed into his image. Because we live under an entirely different form of currency now, don't we? We no longer value what the world values, viewing anything that stands in our way of knowing Jesus more. It is rubbish. It is a liability. It is of negative value, which is why he can say that for the sake of knowing Jesus, he was willing to suffer the loss of all things. Take it all away and give me Jesus, the hymn says. Give me Jesus. His achievements, rubbish. Possessions, status, relationships, security, it was all rubbish if it stood in the way of him knowing Jesus more. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, the singular asset of any value that remained in his ledger. 
right? What, what makes knowing Jesus of such great value is knowing who he is and what he has done. Our gaining what Christ accomplished on our behalf, receiving that into our asset column, our not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, he says, meaning we are not loved, we are not accepted by God because of anything that we have done, but by that which comes through faith in Christ, gaining the righteousness from God that depends on faith in Christ. Put another way, we gain a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ's faithfulness. God declaring us righteous because of Christ's perfect righteousness. Jesus taking on everything that existed in our liabilities column. Paying off all the debt that we owed to God because of our sin, a debt we could never pay. What makes knowing Jesus of such great value is our gaining what Christ has accomplished and our being found in him, he says, incorporated into his body, abiding in him as he abides in us. Our belonging to him, our living as his hands and feet, living for the good of one another and for the glory of God. What makes knowing Jesus so valuable is the righteousness you can only gain by being found in him. That's why I want you to know Jesus. That's why we want more and more people to know Jesus. Not to know about him, but to know him more. Because to know Jesus, Paul says, is to know the power of his resurrection. A power that brings dead things to life. A power that restores life. A power that set the events of the age to come into motion. To know Jesus is to share in his sufferings, he writes. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily as we follow the suffering servant. Not down an easy path through a wide gate, but down a very difficult path through a very narrow gate. Expecting suffering because of our faith rather than being surprised by it. Embracing the suffering because of our faith rather than avoiding it. Knowing that Jesus is present with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? The only way there can be a shadow is if there is light. And that light shines in the darkness. Knowing Christ is present with us in our suffering, forming us into his image as we faithfully follow his way in obedience to his words. Because to know Jesus is to share in his death, becoming like him in his death. The one who we read in the last chapter humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In some sense, dying to ourselves in order to live for Christ and another laying down our lives, even literally if need be, but laying down our lives knowing what is to come because to know Jesus is to hope in his promised return. Knowing without a shadow of a doubt that if you have been united with him in a death like his, we will most certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen? attaining our own resurrection from the dead upon his return when he will make all things new, restoring all of creation to the way it was in the very good beginning. To know Jesus is to love him more intimately, to love what he loves. To know Jesus is to follow him more faithfully, to go where he leads. To know Jesus is to desire his will and to do his work as his hands and his feet. And the thing is, is that the more that you come to know Jesus, the more you want others to know Jesus, pointing others to Jesus by loving them like Jesus, knowing all there is to gain by being found in him as Christ, as the promised Messiah, the one sent by God, the love and the acceptance that we all desire, the righteousness we could never acquire on our own, 
and experiencing that hope and peace that we can only find by trusting in him as Lord. There is nothing of greater value than knowing Jesus. And yet we're quick to forget. We're quick to forget the truth of God's word and quick to listen to the lies of the world. Adding other things to Jesus, valuing other things above Jesus, oftentimes those things that we added to Jesus. Which is why we need to hear this reminder over and over and over again. We could probably come back and I just preach the exact same sermon next week and it'd be okay. Third week, you might be a little sick of it by then. Oh, this is the part where Dan's picture comes up. But we're quick to forget, which is why we need to hear this reminder as a safeguard for us, for our hearts, for our lives. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.